0: You know, in this past, what, year and a half, two years, we've been fighting nature. There has been this epidemic going on. And we've done everything from hide in closets where we lock ourselves in our rooms and we've tried to be safe. You know, ultimately... In this great battle of man versus nature, nature wins. Earth will melt away as snow, as that song says. It's going to be gone. And God's going to create a new heaven, a new earth, where it's not going to be disease. There's not going to be illness. There's not going to be sickness. There's not going to be sadness. That day will come one day. This morning as we continue on in the book of Acts, we really pick up where we left off last week. Uh, Last week we were looking at the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we were looking at the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation and the reaction of the people. Today, we get to pick up with the results. What happened when the Holy Spirit came and empowered the church? And when Jesus gave that promise of receiving power, it was the promise of being able. It's built off of the word meaning to be able to be his witnesses. And that power was the power to take the gospel message around the world. We're going to pick up reading in um, Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin with verse 14. Remember, this is the same day, same event that we were talking about last week. So we really are picking up. We've had a week in between. They haven't. They've had maybe a couple hours. We don't know exactly how long. Maybe a few minutes. We're going to pick up with the same event of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. And, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy ones see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out. Excuse me. And from the, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out. <clears throat> excuse me. Let's try that verse again. Beginning again with verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain... Let us pray. Heavenly Father, together we have read your word. We have looked at what has happened and and when you sent the Holy Spirit. Father, show us today what is that message for us. What is it that we need to learn from this passage? Father, speak to each and every heart. Lay upon our hearts the action we need to take to see the results of your work. In our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I already mentioned we're picking up where we left off last week. Remember, the Holy Spirit came, and they're in the house. It shook the house. Um, At some point, and the tongues of fire came, rested on them. The Holy Spirit indwelled them. And at some point they went outside and they began to speak and they're speaking in tongues and everybody's hearing in their own language and they're asking what's going on because aren't these men all Galileans? They're not from around here. They don't speak my language. I don't speak their language, but I'm hearing in my language. And so all this is going on and they're asking this question. What? Does this mean? And of course, others not they can't see what's happening. They don't understand what's happening, so they just they they try to blow it off. Ah, they're just drunk. They're just drunk, that's all. I want to look just briefly at how Peter addresses these questions. He really is. He's he's addressing two questions or two statements. He starts by addressing where the people are, their condition, their question. Because they're asking, what does this mean? That was back in verse 12, which we didn't read today. But he's also got verse 13, where they say they're drunk. So Peter starts out talking about what they're talking about. He also uses their religion. Uh, he approaches them. He himself is Jewish. The people he is talking to is Jewish. So he starts with their religious writing, which he says was foretelling of Jesus Christ coming. If you look at th- this is one of the funny, one of those funny points to me. He stands up. In the middle of the congregation, we've got all the other apostles around him. There's 12 of them there that are gathered in this group. And he says, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk. He's he's addressing that. Oh, they're drunk. Well, no, they're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. That's kind of an interesting reply. Uh, he didn't say, because they don't get drunk. He's saying, no, it's too early in the day. We, we, couldn't, we didn't have time to get drunk yet. I'm, uh, that's maybe not where I would start. My wife and I once started a, um, helped start a church that met just above a bar. And we saw a lot of people drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Some of them were still there from the night before. They hadn't gone home yet. Uh, we had some really interesting song services too, because there were a few of them that had to go down and get a few drinks before they would come up to church. That, that had happened. We, we saw that happening. But he says, no, they're not drunk. And he's, he's really presenting a logical argument as to why that can't be. It's too early in the morning, they wouldn't be drunk yet. Remember, this is a holiday. This was a religious holiday. They had a specific religious rite they had to follow. And he's just thinking if we're following this holiday and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, there is no way that could be. So he goes on to explain the meaning. And he approaches them through their religious writings, the prophecy of Joel, he also brings in the writing of David, but he transitioned and he begins to explain to them how the Old Testament, those writings, were teaching about Jesus Christ. And he begins to lay out from the Old Testament what it was that was happening. He begins to transition. In verse 22, we see where he says that Jesus was attested by God that these signs and wonders he did that they knew. They had seen it. These people had been there. It wasn't done in a closet. It wasn't done just at Galilee. He he did miracles He did signs and wonders in Jerusalem. He was in Judea when he was baptized during the the, uh, ministry of John the Baptist. They knew him well in that area. And he transitions, he says, This Jesus of Nazareth, he was the Christ. And he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan that he would die. And he begins to bring in the key, the heart of the Christian message. The heart of the Christian message is the death, burial, and resurrection. God himself died for our sins, for our guilt. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead. We can never, ever get away from that message. That is the heart of the Christian message. Christ died for us. This was God's plan. There was victory over death. The prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ begins in Genesis chapter 2. And all through the Bible, there's that prophecy. And so Peter is pointing out this was God's plan. It was the prophecy. He shows them from Scripture. That's what the verses there from, from uh, like 25 through 28. We see there another one where he's showing from the David. Remember, David was their, their mightiest king, and they highly respected him. And we take the writings of David who walked very close with God. And he's showing them how, okay, that David's writing didn't apply to him. He was prophesying of the coming of Christ. Peter uses multiple passages here, three different passages that we read about. And he keeps pointing them back to Jesus. He mentions Jesus multiple times. He starts at verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan that you crucified. Uh, Looking down again, verse 32, this Jesus God raised from the dead. Uh, Later on, we see verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. He got to who is the Savior. He started with that Old Testament prophecy and he began to preach who Christ was. And we read this, maybe it's a little longer passage than we would often read before a preaching service, but Peter had a much longer service than what I read. If you look down in verse 40, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. It wasn't that Peter stood up, preached a five-minute sermon, and 3,000 people ran forward. This was apparently an ongoing conversation. With many other words, he's talking to the people. He's engaging them. He's telling them, be saved from this crooked generation. He also shows them the error of their ways. Two different times, he tells the people, you crucified Christ. Verse 23 This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Again, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know know for certain that God has raised him, excuse me, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow, he throws it right there. Uh, yeah, it was God's plan, and you're responsible. <laughs> now, there's a, a, a tension in Scripture between God's plan and our responsibility. I wish I knew exactly how that works. It, it's, it's this constant tension between what is, it is our decision that we make and what is it that God has already ordained, and it's going to happen. And if anybody tells you that they know, they're deluding themselves. (laughs) Because it really is this tension all through Scripture. God knew there was a plan beforehand. People are still responsible for their own actions. You are responsible for your actions. God already knows what's going to happen. He already knows, but you're still responsible for what you do. And Peter throws this right at the people. Jesus was the Messiah, this long-awaited Messiah. They're waiting for the king. They're waiting for deliverance. They're expecting it any day. And he says, the Messiah came, and you killed him. What was it like for those people standing in that congregation What was that like for them? The long awaited Messiah. They were still waiting. He came. And they killed him. They killed the deliverer. Oh, the people to ask. I created a whole nother question. What? shall we do? There was a question, what what are we supposed to do about it now? He's dead, what what do we need to do? And Peter gave him the answer, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, the title of today's message is True Repentance. What What does it mean to repent Because as we look at the results of the coming of the Holy Spirit, he's convicting the people of sin. They're asking, what do they need to do? And Peter says, you need to repent. Now, this week we're looking at repentance. Next week, John will be preaching on the baptism part. We've divided these two topics up and decided not to try to do it in one message. We're going to break this up into two. So this week, we're looking at what is true repentance. So let's start with this nice dictionary definition. Um, You know, it's always nice to define your terms. I just Googled the word repent, and this comes from Oxford Languages partnered with Google. You know, when you, you type in a word on Google and it pops up a definition, you know, it says meaning? It's coming from the Oxford Dictionary in case you ever wanted to know. Since I do use their, their definition, I wanted to give them credit. It says to repent. To repent, of course, is the verb form. It's to feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. It's a view or think of an action or omission with deep regret Or remorse. You notice it says deep regret, sincere regret of an action or an omission. An action, that's when you do what you really wish you hadn't done, or an omission, you don't do what you really should have done. And sometimes, not doing what you should have brings even greater remorse. Those are some of those times, you know, it keeps you awake at night. Oh, I really should have done this. And you know those times. Everybody, I see some heads nodding. Yes. We've all done that, where we've done things that we know we shouldn't have done, and we're sorry. We're really sorry. There is deep regret that we did it, and there's times we didn't do some things we know we should have done, and there is deep, Regret on our hearts, and we just like, we wish we had done that. Repentance is just the noun form of that. It's the action of repentance. Or it is the sincere regret or remorse. So true repentance, it uses those words deep, sincere. It is a very deep, strong, feeling. True repentance isn't one of those like, oh, I probably really shouldn't have done that, but man, wasn't that funny? <laughs> you ever done that once? Oh, that was kind of mean of me, but boy, was that a hilarious joke. You know, uh, we've all kind of done those too. I, um, especially in the household I grew up in. My mom was a trickster. She loved playing pranks on people. Like, one time. <laughs> my wife says, oh, no. She, she, one time, my mom is making something out of chocolate, and she's using baker's chocolate. That's before they put the sugar in. And you know, cocoa is really bitter. And she goes to my younger brother, or she goes to me, she goes, hey, watch this. She goes to my younger brother, hey, Russ, you want to lick the spoon? <laughs> Hands the spoon, and my poor younger brother, ugh. Mom goes, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It was mean, but it was sure funny. (laughs) She kind of did that to my older brother with Limburger cheese, too. But (laughs) we have those. We have those in our lives. And that's not repentance. It's kind of one of those things, oh, that was kind of mean. True repentance, it is those times that it eats you up. True repentance, it's the type of of feeling where it keeps you awake at night. Where you may physically hurt because you are so sorry for your actions. Look at verse, um, oh I didn't write down which verse it is, where they were cut to the heart. Verse 37, thank you. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Cut to the heart. As John and I were sitting down and we were, were looking at how do we approach the book of Acts and how do we divide up the messages? And John goes, he goes, I love how the writer of Acts expresses that because he says it." It's cut to the heart. It's a feeling that's so deep, a remorse so deep that it feels like a physical pain. You can have physical pain. You are so sorry about what you did or didn't do, that it hurts. That's where we're looking at true. Repentance, and that's why it created this other question What are we supposed to do about it? Is it too late? What's going on? What do we do? People are asking that question, and so Peter gives them what seems like a rather simplistic answer. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When Peter calls them to repentance, it's interesting because he actually uses a word that's stronger than what repent means in English. Now, I am not going to pretend to be a Greek scholar. I did take Greek at university. I was in the class with a girl I was dating. I'm now married to her. Um, It was kind of embarrassing because she's a whole lot smarter than me. I did so well in Greek though that they said, you're going to have to take another language because of your grades. I took Spanish. Spanish is a little easier for an English speaker. So I ended up having to do a different language for my my bachelor's degree. I'm not going to pretend, but I think it is important that we look at Peter's words that he actually used as recorded by Luke. Luke was Greek. He spoke Greek. That was his mother tongue. And he records this word... And I'm going to mispronounce it. Some of you can teach me later how it should have been done. Metaneo, I guess, is close enough. Now, I really don't know this word. It doesn't mean anything to me. But that prefix does, meta, because we use that in English. That has gone on in the languages with very, very similar meanings. We use words like metamorphosis when the caterpillar changes and becomes a butterfly. That word that it's changed, and and they, they use it with another one, changed after, becoming with, that it is a strong word for change. The next word that it's combined with means to think. And so properly, the, the the exact meaning is to think differently after having a change of mind to repent means literally, literally, it is changing completely how you are thinking. It is a massive change, such as a caterpillar into a butterfly. That's the strength that it has. In fact, I was reading one commentary that said, it is a word that is so strong it means that it results in a change of behavior. It's not just that I think I should do something, but it is so strong that it changes your behavior. And so he's saying you've got to change how you're thinking completely differently so much so, it changes how you act. Repent, change in thought and behavior. It's not one or the other, it's both. As we think about applying this into our lives, what is the change that needed to happen? The people had rejected Christ. They had turned Christ over to be crucified. That's why he said, you crucified them by the hands of evil men. They were responsible. They're the ones that delivered up Jesus. And remember, Peter is talking to some of those people that were in the Christ, a feeling it is so strong that it results in change in behavior. Turn to Jesus, and what are you going to get if you do turn to Jesus? The first thing he said is forgiveness for your sins. Remember the remorse? They were cut to the heart. They felt that remorse. They had that feeling. They had that emotion. And here he says, it'll be forgiven. Oh, can you imagine having that pain, that type of pain that you killed the Messiah? He said, you're going to find forgiveness for your sins. That's what you're going to find. Wow, what a message of hope. um, Edward was talking during the opening how we have a king who gave up his life for us. That's who we follow. <clears throat> he died for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's easy for us to point the finger and say, they killed Jesus, but Jesus died for us. Every sinner is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. We're responsible for our actions, we're responsible for his death. We killed Jesus Christ, but when we turn to Jesus Christ, we find the forgiveness cleansing, the purity. And you know, you find that every time you turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness because we're not perfect. Even after repentance, we mess up. We do things we shouldn't do, and we feel guilty, and we feel remorse, and we turn to Him in repentance, and we have find the forgiveness of of our sins, and we also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As Peter didn't say, if you will repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, some of you will receive the Holy Spirit. He said, you will. This is a definite. This will happen. The Holy Spirit is going to move in. He's going to fill you, just as he did those apostles, just as he did the church on Pentecost. And the manifestation may be completely different. You may feel it, and it feels like a rock hit in your chest, or you may just feel like a cleansing, or you may even wonder, I wonder if something really happened, you know? that manifestation, how the Holy Spirit works with you is different than He works with somebody else. Your reaction to that, how He manifests Himself in your life may be very different than what the apostles experienced. What He did say is you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And He goes on, He said, This promise is for you. He's standing there in that crowd. Remember, people from all over the world are hearing the gospel in their language, and he says, it's for you. It is all of you. It's a new plural. It's for all of you and for your children and even for people who are far off. It doesn't matter if they're here in Jerusalem today. This message it's for everyone that God is calling to himself. That's why we're here today, isn't it? How many of us grew up in Jerusalem? Now, in an international church, sometimes we get a hand raised with that one. <laughs> I didn't grow up. Yeah, some of you grew up really close. Uh, so, you, you know, the places that Jesus experienced from childhood. I didn't. I grew up on another continent. But I praise God that that message is for all. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter how close you were to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter how close you were standing to the apostles. And he talks about it's for everyone who God is calling to himself. Turn to Jesus. Now, he also um, talked about turning away from the crooked generation, to turn away from evil. Now, I can say in America, we usually flip those around. We say you need to turn away from your old life and turn to Jesus. You need to turn your back on the old life and turn to Jesus. He starts with Jesus. The point is turning to Jesus. If you turn to Jesus, you're going to turn your back on your old life. You can't turn to Jesus and not. I mean, if I'm facing this way and I turn this way, what are you facing? Where's your back? I mean, if you've got your back towards Jesus and you turn to him, you're turning away from evil. He is encouraging them to be saved from the crooked generation. That thought, the common thought, because society as a whole was rejecting Jesus Christ the religion was rejecting Jesus Christ. The priests, their religious leaders were rejecting Jesus Christ. And he says, this is a crooked generation. They are not following Jesus Christ and you need to turn away from that. And here's something really cool. Some people listened to him. About three thousand people received his message. About three thousand. Verse 41. Those who received his word and were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. Boy, I dream of being able to preach a gospel message, and have 3,000 people come. Oh, that would be awesome. Do you know, if we preached and 3,000 people came to Christ every day, it's still going to take about 91 years to reach the country where we're sitting. I started punching numbers through the calculator the other day. Oh, so it's going to take a whole lot more. It's not going to be one sermon or two sermons with 3,000. It's going to have to be like we see developing Acts where the individuals kept going out, and it was a snowball effect where thousands and thousands came to Christ. I had shared a statistic one day with our... Um, not sure if it was here or with our, our leadership team. Between 2000 and 2020, Africa has averaged over 37,000 people a day coming to Christ. You've seen the movement. Samson's been there, he's seen it, he knows it happens. God can move. We see the, how through Asia, the church planting movements have just swept. God has moved in great and mighty ways. The Asian numbers are just slightly behind what we've seen in Africa. It's just amazing to watch. In that same time period, from the statistics we've been able to count, Europe has averaged about eight people a day. So when we talk about being a sending church and going out and sharing, we need to be sharing right here first and foremost where we see thousands every day coming to Christ. That is what we are praying for. Those who received Peter's message, they were baptized and they joined the church and they were added that day about 3,000 souls.